This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 17th, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Michael Tobus. He has a PhD in atmospheric and oceanic sciences, so he's the perfect person to talk to about climate change. Enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On a Skype line now, I have Michael Tobus. Michael has a PhD in atmospheric and oceanic sciences from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also the editor of the initforthegold.blogspot.com blog. Um, Michael, recently the uh, US Republican presidential nominee candidates were all asked uh, pretty much if they believe in science as it uh, regards climate change. And I think almost every single one of them said they did not. What's going on? It's clear that uh, there is uh, sort of an affiliation uh, that has uh, affected the entire uh, entire public regarding what they think about this problem. Uh, and um, so people who lean left are expected to more or less believe that the problem is serious. People who lean right are expected to not believe so. Um, there are certain aspects of the American political system that uh, unfortunately um, enhance the more extreme opinions, and it's become very difficult for a Republican to get the nomination without uh, absolutely dismissing um, the the nature of uh, the the climate problem as science understands it. Um, on the other hand, I would say that most people don't understand it very well. The general public doesn't understand it very well. They're they're just uh, they tend to be aligning on the basis of, of affiliation, cultural affiliation. You might even say tribal affiliation, rather than based on what I think would be a reasonable level of understanding of what the outlines in the problem are. Well, you're the scientist. I'm, I'm certainly not. But as I see it, the thing is pretty simple. It's CO2 traps heat in the atmosphere. We're producing more CO2 by burning fossil fuels, oil, and coal. We are likely to increase the temperature of the planet, and that's dangerous. That's a pretty simple proposition, isn't it? Yes, I would I would agree with that. I think the, the important piece that you may or may not be aware of and that you didn't explicitly mention is that uh, the carbon dioxide problem is cumulative, which is to say, it, although often you hear people talk about emissions rates, it's actually the total emissions that, that, that drive the problem. And, uh, so, so that if you've got the tap on in your bath, it makes a difference whether the plug is in or out. If you've got the tap on and the plug in, eventually it's going to overflow. Excellent analogy, yes. Clearly, part of the issue here is that there are people out there who make a lot of money from the oil industry and the coal industry, and it's in their interests to stop or to delay any change to that economic setup. But I think there's perhaps two reasons that 
people, perhaps including yourself, who are trying to communicate not necessarily the science, but the effects of it that I, I said there. One is that maybe it's not being communicated all that well. And the second one is that perhaps it's being mixed with an ideology and people who don't agree with that ideology don't like the mixture of that message and the ideology. But just go to the the, um, uh, the communication of the message. Do you think that that's being done well? I, I think that one shouldn't criticize the people trying to deliver the message. They have a, a, a number of hurdles that, that are sort of unanticipated that they're, they're facing. Um, one is that the people who understand the situation best are not professional communicators, nor are they empowered to hire professional communicators. The, the best they can do is people like me who sort of volunteer to do that and never had any specific training in it. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the people who are uh, funded by fossil fuels um, – and I, I shouldn't say the entire fossil fuel industry because I think that's unfair – uh, but there are people who are connected to the fossil fuel industry who have a lot of um, money at their disposal can hire professionals to muddy the waters. And I think democracy works best when I think it's obvious that democracy works best when the uh, people making when the population making decisions has reasonably good information. Uh, but the playing field isn't level and the people delivering the misinformation um, have more resources at their disposal. So, uh, and, and furthermore, there's a couple of reasons that people resist the information as it stands. Um, it, it, um, it's an expensive proposition to deal with this problem correctly, uh, and, uh, somewhat of a difficult one. And, uh, uh people don't want to hear the, uh, worst case scenarios. People don't want to hear how bad it might get. It's very threatening. Sure, sure. But just to, to tackle one point of that, that, for example, I'm sure you're aware of uh, Naomi Klein. And she, I, as far as I know, has no expertise in, in either climate science or engineering. But she's been very explicit in, in uh, backing action on climate change. But also, also she's been very explicit in saying that this is part of a wider agenda um, against capitalism in its broad sense. Don't you think that people who are scientists like you and also engineers have a duty to say, hang on a second, this is the science, this is the engineering. You're welcome to your ideology, but don't try and co-opt our science into into your ideology. Well, I actually uh, was sent a review copy of the book and I, I slogged through it. I quite didn't like it. And I have uh, I have an article, I think it's on In It for the Gold somewhere, uh, that, that basically makes that exact point. Um, there are things that uh, a reasonable policy would do that w would be uncomfortable to people who are opposed to regulation, but that doesn't mean the entire capitalist enterprise is, uh, is uh, refuted in some way or that uh, every left-leaning position is somehow supported by these sci scientific facts. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I but, totally but do you see, you can imagine the average um, Republican presidential candidate pointing at this and saying, see, this is just all one big conspiracy about ca against capitalism. They're just making it up to scare us away from having freedom. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm very familiar with that dynamic. And, and there is definitely a, a there, there are definitely two sides of the coin. Um, it seems difficult for people to. 
um, think about problems and uh, pay attention to aspects of, of the reasoning that uh, the other side of this increasingly vast chasm that's emerged in, in politics um, has, has caused, um, we need to be able to weigh information and weigh ideas that uh, don't come with the baggage of this comes from this team and that comes from that team. And uh, I, I think that's another handicap that we're facing is that, that um, it's, it's difficult to raise certain prospects. And the, the most obvious one would be nuclear power, which uh, quite plausibly at least uh, provides a way out of this situation and which is anathema to the left. Um, that's a good point. And uh, frequently people who are now campaigning on the issue of climate change were previously anti-nuclear campaigners. There's a little bit of an irony there. Um, but uh, to go back actually to the science, and since I have hey, a science... I'd, I'd like to interrupt you here. Um, I, it's my opinion, it's my perception that climate scientists themselves have never been anti-nuclear and never really perceived ourselves as environmentalists in that sense. Now, I'm very much an environmentalist in the sense that I believe that we should preserve nature, and I, I, I love nature, and I live in a way that puts me in contact with nature. Um, but uh, I, I don't identify myself or my issue as an environmental issue. I think it's a it's a sustainable sustainability issue in a, in a larger and, and, and different sense. And um, we need to be able to look for uh, paths that take us to the future without serious problems. And nuclear power is certainly something that needs to be considered. And I found that um, most climate scientists, including the most left-leaning ones I know, are very willing to consider nuclear. Since I have you as a scientist on, and I think uh, you agree that I correctly uh, summated the issue in saying um, we're producing carbon carbon increases the heat uh, uh the amount of heat on the planet and that's dangerous for each of those three steps could you maybe in a very very um accessible way explain exactly why it's the case so, so number one uh we're producing carbon uh well um you're asking me to explain why it's the case or why we know yeah it's exactly well why it's the case is we're burning fossil fuels why we know it's the case is that we have uh, direct observations of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere since about 1950 and very accurate indirect ones going back actually hundreds of thousands of years. And we see a, an extraordinary spike in the amount of carbon in the air. So, uh, and, and it is, if you actually add it up, multiply the density of the atmosphere by the uh, uh, proportion of CO2 and compare it with the amount of fossil fuels we're burning, we're in the same ballpark and we're finding about half of it stays in the air. And we're assuming that, well, we're concluding that uh, the rest of it mostly goes into the ocean and some of it is actually going into the biosphere. And second one, carbon dioxide increases the temperature of the planet. Well, this is actually extremely established uh, physics. It, it actually, the, the, the principles go back to the mid 19th century and actually an estimate of the amount of warming that would be caused by a given amount of carbon dioxide. It goes back to uh, sometime in the 1890s, a fellow who eventually won the Nobel Prize for other reasons uh, by the name of Arrhenius, a, a Swedish person, mm -hmm. uh, spent a couple of years working this out. It was a, it was not just a side project for him. 
And he came again to the right ballpark as to the amount of warming that would would happen. Um, so, sorry, just to clarify there, what you're saying is that for X amount of carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere, it's possible to calculate you will have Y amount of increase in temperature. I believe that I, I think I think that's fair to say within a factor of maybe plus or minus fifty percent, where, where there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, but it's not huge. Okay. And then third point of that, it's dangerous, is it? That's harder. Um, there's certainly some level of danger. I mean, if the temperature were to go up to 100 degrees Celsius, the ocean would boil. So um, we ho- we're we not going to reach that level, but it's clear that there is a danger level somewhere between here and 100 degrees Celsius. If we're talking about the increases of as much as um, 10 degrees Celsius over land, um Clearly, we're we're talking about things that that are are uh, enormously disruptive. Um, when do we get to the 10 degrees C, or will we, or is there enough carbon to do that? All of it is fairly close call. Um, the the real controversy is whether the two degrees Celsius limit that's been set by a a peculiar um, convergence of political and scientific interests is really a hard and fast limit. And I think the reason that we've come to two degrees C is to give people a goal to be to to be focused on. We don't actually know if two degrees C will be uh, <coughs> catastrophic or fairly harmful. Sure. Um, help me out on this. Um, two degrees Celsius, that's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it just doesn't seem all that big. If somebody told me that it was going to be 22 Celsius and not 24 Celsius tomorrow, or if it was going to be, let's say, 50 degrees or 53.6 degrees, I probably wouldn't make a decision to have a lighter jacket on. Why is it that that kind of apparently small amount of temperature is uh, has the potential to be threatening? Um, well, what if you uh, put a thermometer in your mouth and it was uh, two degrees Celsius higher than normal? You'd be concerned. Um, it, it matters what you're measuring. Um, it turns out that two degrees Celsius uh, on the whole planet is a very different matter than two degrees Celsius at a point. Um, for one thing, as I, as I already mentioned, um, the last time it was two degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial, um, the sea level was much higher. There's a lot of evidence that the climate has been relatively stable for about 7,000 during, and it's exactly that period during which human civilization emerged. So everything we know about agriculture, everything we know about infrastructure is based on uh, actually an unusually stable period in the climate. And for us to be rocking the boat at this point is, uh, um, may, I think we were overconfident about how stable this is. It, it seems to be somewhat accidental that, um, the climate has been stable and uh, during the period in which, uh, human civilization emerged. Now you could argue that human civilization was allowed to emerge because it was a, a particularly benign period in the climate. So, so in, in layman's terms, you're saying that an average of two degrees over the whole of the planet might be almost nothing in some places and 10 degrees warmer over the poles, which would give you a lot of melting ice. Uh, there's there's some of that. And there's also the distinction between the heating rates uh, and the, the temperature changes in the ocean over land. And that those temperature differences are what drives weather. So we're uh, in addition to sea level rise, we're concerned about what a 
changing global temperature means to the way the weather systems work. And how we live in any individual place is based on the weather that we expect at that particular place. As we move farther and farther from the uh, natural climate, uh, we will start seeing more and more unusual events happen. It's hard to pull that out of the statistics because unusual events have always happened. But I think a lot of uh, parts of the world, people are starting to scratch their heads and, and, and say, well, yes, we've always had unusual events, but maybe we haven't had this many or quite this strange. And um, it's right on the margins of what we can say uh, statistically right now, but if you actually extrapolate into the future, um, it, it the, the two degrees uh, changes the uh, or organization of where the warm and cold points, relatively cold points, are on the surface of the Earth. So, so if, if I was to trans translate that into, into simpler English, that if you have that, for example, almost no change in one place, maybe 10 degrees warmer over the poles, that means that the winds blow in a different way, that the ocean currents goes in, go in a different way, and the actual temperature itself isn't so disruptive, but those changes could be very disruptive. I, I don't want to be on record saying two degrees C amounts to 10 degrees over the poles. So. No, 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 but just as, a, as, a, as an example. Uh, but yes, yeah, certainly, if that were to happen, you would have dramatically different weather patterns. Yes, and, and, okay. and, 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 and there's no reason to expect that um, the, in fact, I would like to I would like to suggest that two degrees is not the the driver of the problem; it is a measure of the problem. So the analogy to having a, a fever on on your thermometer is, is actually quite strong. Um, you, you you can in fact die of a fever, but if you have a fever, it generally indicates that something is going wrong, and uh, it. You, you could die before your fever reaches a, a temperature where it's actually the the actual danger. Okay, and one last question for you. Uh, I know that um, there's fairly simple physics in that there, when there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more heat from the sun is trapped in the atmosphere, less of it radiates back into space. But there's also secondary effects. For example, if you have ice cover, uh, at a particular point in the poles, then that's very bright. It uh, It's white. It reflects away light. If you have darker water or land, that's going to absorb more heat. Is that two degrees that you're talking about that's being calculated, taking all those into account? And if it is, isn't that a very much more complex calculation? Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a good question. And, and the answer is more or less complicated. But the simple answer is, yes, you're right. There is some complexity in there, um, and uh, some of it's actually not in there. The, the very long-term feedbacks in the system are not in there. Those don't appear to be favorable. People who are attacking the uh, the science for uh, because they don't want the policy will often attack on that particular point, which is um, uh, not uh, it's not just the carbon dioxide that's causing the problem. But in terms of determining what the sensitivity of the system is, how much warming you're going to get, um, there's a particular feedback that dominates, which is how much water vapor there is. And uh, the, the argument is that if the surface of the Earth gets warmer, um, the, there will be more evaporation. This is actually a very strong relationship, and it's, it's classical physics, and there is no sensible 
a way of looking at the problem in which this feedback is absent. Michael Tobus, uh, the author of In It for the Gold.blogspot.com, also PhD in Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate the time. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast, published on April 14th, 2017. Do you know somebody who I should interview? Or what topics should I be covering? I would really be interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter. You can follow the show at ChallengingO. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes if you have an Apple product or Google Play Music if you're on Android. And there's links for both of those and the RSS feed if you use that. You can find it all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Monday, that's April 17th, I'll have a brand new interview with Jennifer Briney. She's the host of the excellent Congressional Dish podcast. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>